Today we come to the final chapter of the story, what began in January with the book of Genesis, now concludes in the middle of November in the book of Revelation. Our scriptural journey has taken us from the dawn of time to today's peak into the end of time. At creation, God created human beings in His own image with the sole purpose of being with us. He wanted relationship, He wanted community, He wanted connection. And every day, God, Adam, and Eve mutually enjoyed that closeness. But sin fractured that relationship and caused separation. The entire Old Testament is a glimpse into God's passionate pursuit to get us back, to restore the closeness in that relationship. And ultimately, the story of God reaches a crescendo in the man, Christ Jesus. His death on a cross and His resurrection from the grave finally provided a way for restored relationship between God and man. What was lost in the Garden of Eden was restored in the work of Jesus at the cross. In hindsight, the story of God is ultimately about His desire to dwell with man. He came in the garden and spent the evenings with Adam and Eve. And then throughout the Old Testament, His glory and presence filled tabernacles and filled temples simply because of His desire to be with His people. In the New Testament, He wanted to be with us so badly that He left His home. He became an exile in our home so that we would have a way to be at home with Him. God became a man to be with us and so that we would once again have a way to be with him. At the end of time, it is prophesied that God's dwelling place will be among his people and his people will be with him. All that God has ever wanted will be a reality in eternity. One day, all of us who have surrendered our lives to Jesus and confessed him as Lord will experience all that heaven has to offer. The end of the story will look a lot like the beginning of the story, God hanging out with humanity. This time, it won't be a man and a woman in a garden. It will be all of those who have called upon Him as the Lord of their lives, and they will enter into a place He has created for His children. God's plan will finally be complete. His dwelling will be with His people. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 9 that it is written, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. I want to begin the final message in this journey today with some background information about the book of Revelation and its author. It was written by the Apostle John, who had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos, for fearlessly holding on to the kingdom of God and refusing to surrender to the rule of Rome or the kingdom of Rome. He held on to Jesus at all costs. Jesus was his Lord, not Caesar, not Nero, not anyone else for that matter. And it ultimately had him suffered. He was suffering, he was persecuted, and he is exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And while he is exiled, God gives John this amazing vision, or as the book says, can also be called a revelation. And this is a vision or a revelation of the future. It's as if God lifts the veil for John, the the, the 
veil that separates the physical world from the spiritual world. And he lifts the veil, allows John to see into a realm that we don't see with our natural eyes. And John gets a glimpse of the present behind the veil. And he gets a glimpse of the future and what it looks like behind the veil. And when John looks behind the veil, there's this spiritual war that is playing out behind the scenes of the physical world. God and Satan and Satan are at war. The book of Revelation is a poetic description of Satan's attacks and his tricks, but it's also a poetic description of the promise of God and the hope of every believer. The first century Christian would have been suffering amazing persecution when they were hearing this letter or reading this letter from John. So for many of us today, we can understand, we we may not be able to understand fully what they were going through, but for them and for us, as we read it today, it reveals that in spite of persecution, in spite of ridicule, the bottom line of the book of Revelation is this, God wins. Period. He is victorious in convincing and decisive fashion. Now, the book of Revelation is a little intimidating because there are several different ways to interpret it. There are different interpretations that center around what someone would be called their millennial view. A millennium is a thousand years and there is a mention of this thousand-year stretch and within the book of Revelation. Without getting too confusing, there are three dominant views on how the end of time is going to unfold around this millennium that is promised in the book of Revelation. And, and throughout my theological journeys, I've listened to countless arguments against and reasons for what should be taken literally in the book of Revelation and what should be viewed as figurative speech in the book of Revelation. And there are all these theories that have been floating around about how to interpret the book of Revelation for the last 2,000 years of church history. Godly men and women of faith have spent countless hours and much of their lives looking into the prophetic matters in this book, and all of them are convinced that from a scriptural standpoint, their view is right. And of course, Time doesn't permit us to go into deep theological discussion about end time views today. We don't have time to cover all the questions, much less the answers. But what makes it even more difficult to understand the book of Revelation is that the book only gives us a glimpse of the end time in bits and pieces. We don't have the whole picture. So there is definitely an element of mystery and all of our questions, no matter how much we study, are not going to be answered. And I believe that's kind of by God's design because he is going to maintain the upper hand on how his story plays out. I believe God did it that way to create curiosity and anticipation for us. Try as hard as we may, we can, we'll never be certain of every infinite detail. I have watched throughout my life well-intentioned people with their charts and their timelines carry on like they know every emphatic end-time detail. But I've also watched those same people after several years of following along watching them. I've watched them get out their racers and re-edit their charts and reprint their graphs along the way. They will spend hours arguing over their opinions on the matter. And I do have an opinion on the matter. But if I were going to be emphatic with you, I'm going to be emphatic with you on something that will affect your salvation. We might disagree on the way to interpret the book of Revelation. 
But if Jesus is the Lord of our life, we will both go to heaven and eventually find out who's right and who's wrong on the book of Revelation. Regardless of your millennial view, the view you have or the view you don't have, I agree with Aaron Brockett who summarizes the bottom line of the book this way. When the apocalyptic dust settles, make certain you're standing with Jesus. He's so right. Here's what we can be sure of. The Bible says in very clear fashion, nobody, no one knows the day or the hour. No one knows exactly how or when all of these end time events are going to unfold. But the point in studying the book of Revelation is to remind us of the certainty that they will unfold and quite possibly in our lifetime. The bottom line is be ready, live ready. Jesus will return someday. He may delay his returning long enough for you to go to heaven by way of the grave but regardless we have to live this life as if today was the day and be ready any moment of any day in revelation john the apostle was encouraging christians in the first century who were a part of the persecuted church now god intended for us to read this book and be strengthened encouraged and spiritually transformed by it but the original audience for john was the first century church persecuted suffering believer the roman government at that time had one goal and that was to turn the christian church into a bloody smudge on the pages of history the people who were reading this book of Revelation or hearing it read for the very first time were people who were living under the persecution of Nero. Nero had dipped their family members in oil and rammed a stake through them and used burning Christians as a way to light the roadways of Rome. His goal was to eradicate the church. Their friends had been beheaded or devoured by wild animals in the Colosseum. They had been burned alive. They were constantly living under death threats. And John, the author of the book of Revelation, is in exile because of his faith. And there was this sense of fear and defeat among Christ followers of the first century. In their mind, John is gone. He is the last living apostle. And he has been exiled and will die in exile. They are being persecuted mercilessly. It seems like Satan has dominion. It seems like the dragon of the book of Revelation is winning. It seems like the beast of the book has arisen from the abyss and is going to prevail. It looks like the church is going to perish. But the message of John in Revelation is this. Things are not always as they appear to be. If you know anything about John, you will remember a few decades prior to being exiled, there was a very dark Friday in John's life when his Savior and Lord was brutally executed on a cross. And just like the first century believers writing, John was writing to that thought it was over, that little band of believers after the crucifixion of Jesus felt the same way. They felt like it was all over. But Things were not as they appeared to be. Friday was dark, but Sunday was coming. And it may look like there is inevitable devastation and defeat, but that's not the end of the story. Early on in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus is going to unfold his plan in the face of devastation and defeat. He says in the very first few verses of Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega. That means I am the bookend. I am the start and I am the finish. The Lord God who is, who was, and who is to come. As you read through Revelation, you become convinced that Jesus conquers death. He conquers the dragon. He conquers the beast. He conquers the legions of false prophets. He conquers all who sponsor and promote evil. For the child of God, the book of Revelation does not need to be a book of confusion, but a book of hope. It doesn't need to cause fear. It needs to bring relief because it reveals a triumphant end for the Christ follower because in the end, God wins. In the big picture, in the grand scheme of things, God settles the score. That is the promise of the entire book. And can you imagine if you were living in this extreme persecution to hear These words from the last living apostle that made it back to you from his place of exile. And you were hearing these promises. Can you imagine how it must have encouraged these suffering saints? And in the same way, God desires for it to encourage you. Living with hope makes a difference in life. Being in the ministry for 23 years, I was saved 23 years ago tomorrow, November the 18th. Is my spiritual birthday. And living in the ministry for, for almost 23 years, um, I, have, I have interacted a lot with funeral directors. And our last church, I pastored six different funeral directors. And there were multiple funeral homes represented there. And I've interacted with many different funeral homes here in Dallas. And I, without fail, I get into a conversation and I ask them from their perspective to tell me what it's like conducting a funeral for someone who has no Christian belief as opposed to those who have it. And they will tell you the contrast is remarkable. When somebody comes into this place facing death, as difficult as it may be, as hard as it may be, when there is a genuine grasp of the eternal hope that they have as a child of God, there is a resonance in their heart. There is a a peace that is unexplainable. And then that is in stark contrast to the, 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 the chaos that is surrounding the lives of people who come in for funeral services who have no faith, no belief, no hope of heaven, and no bearing for eternity. Look at what the revelator says in, John, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 12. It says, John says, he's describing this vision, this revelation that he's getting. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were bronze, glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. The lampstands here represent the seven churches that had been established in Asia Minor. And Jesus is in the middle of these seven churches. And what a brilliant description here of the Son of God. This is no longer a picture of a suffering Savior, but the image you get in this moment is the picture of a conquering King. The book of Revelation comes at you, and you can tell with the figurative speech here, 
the lampstands and all of this imagery that the book of Revelation from the beginning is going to come at you with all sorts of numbers and symbols and sounds and images and countless pictures. You read through the book of Revelation, you're going to find there's a halo that encircles the throne. There are lightning flashes and thunder that rolls. There's a seven-sealed scroll. There's a harp and a bowl of incense. There's a quartet of horses. There's a sun that becomes dark and a moon that becomes blood red. And then all of a sudden there's a new Jerusalem, a holy city, glistening and glowing, descending from heaven, and a river of life, and a tree of life, and a crystal sea, and John just keeps coming with all of these graphic images. And did you know that the book of Revelation is the only book in the New Testament that promises you'll be blessed just by reading it? Revelation 1.3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So while it may be difficult to interpret, the book itself is a blessing in the reading or hearing of its words. And God in His divine will wanted to make certain that we would have at least some hint of an idea of what is to come. So He allows the Apostle John to get a peek behind the veil of this life into the spirit realm and to see into the last days and into heaven. It's a quick overview. It's not a lengthy stay. It's just enough to blow John's mind and John to have a handful of details in this extraordinary euphoric experience so that he could write a few down and give us example a baby spoonful of the glory that was to come and you can tell that John's language was tapped out because just in the description of Jesus that he saw that I read to you how many times did he use the word like how many times did he use the word as because he couldn't describe what he was seeing he was having to compare it to the only thing he knew he saw him and it was like wool it was like a sword it was as a flame of fire because the human language Language did not have the capacity to describe everything that he was seeing. So when we are down and depressed or frazzled and frustrated, remember that Christ is coming. Heaven is real. This is going to end in God's favor. Whatever your present perspective is, the eternal perspective says Jesus Christ is King. Revelation 21 verse 1 says this. This is towards the end of the book. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. What he wanted in Eden is now finally fulfilled in Revelation 21, verse number 3. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. If these words are trustworthy and true, let me give you three quick takeaways this morning from a survey of the book of Revelation. Takeaway number one, everyone will someday stand before God. Everyone. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that it's appointed unto every man once to die and then the judgment. We will all stand before God. For the unbeliever, the the moment of judgment will be a painful reminder of a life filled with poor choices. 
The most devastating of those choices is choosing to live life your own way and not surrendering your life to the only one who can give you life in the first place. For the Christian, maybe even the Christian who has made some poor choices, it will be a different experience because you made the choice that trumps all choices. You made the choice to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And because of that, he will plead your case on your behalf before the judgment. He will be your defense. The Apostle John is given a glimpse into heaven. And when he enters into heaven, the first thing he sees is a throne. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So right smack dab in the middle of the universe is a throne where God is seated running the world. And the eyes at this moment are not drawn to the beauty of heaven. Instead, everyone's eye is drawn to the center of that throne because this is where God is, His presence that rules and reigns. And John seems to be at a loss for words. I think he did his best in the limitations of human speech. He begins to describe the wrappings and the ribbons and the gates of pearl and the streets of transparent gold and the walls that comprise the precious stones like sapphires. There's a crystal river flowing through the center of the city. And I don't think we have the ability to imagine it. John only sees it from a distance. He doesn't even get up close, but he sees enough for you and I to long for this incomparable place. And if the description of what heaven has whets your appetite, then let me remind you of what heaven won't have that will also whet your appetite. No more crying or pain or arguments or anger or depression or anxiety or tumors or treatments or blind eyes or deaf ears or Alzheimer's or AIDS or pink slips or tear-stained divorce papers or flag-draped caskets. No more tears, no more tragedy. No more typhoons. And all I know is that when we get to that place, we will see his face and the trials of this life will seem small and insignificant in contrast to the glory of his radiance. There are a lot of things in this world clamoring for your allegiance. But let me tell you, don't miss heaven for the world. Don't do it. Takeaway number two from this survey of the, of, of the book of Revelation. God will keep his word. You can count on it. All throughout the story, for the past 31 weeks, we have seen that God wants to redeem us. He wants us back. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to reconcile that closeness. The message has never changed from the very first page of the Bible. There is no detour to the plan that God has unfolded. This has been the plan all along. And again, in the book of Revelation, we see the upper story of God intersecting with the lower story of our life. His purpose has never changed. And all of the promises about heaven, God promises that we will be ourselves but we will have a glorified body. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more excited I become about a glorified body. 
and I know that I'm just now getting started, but I'm just at 40, a few aches in the knee and stiff joints in the cold weather. Uh, And I I know some of you that are 80 are saying, shut up, kid, you don't know. I know I don't know, but I know enough to know I'm starting to get excited about a glorified body. (laughs) Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Instant transformation is appealing. I love the story of the country farmer who went into the big city for the very first time. He took his wife and his son, young son with him and they pulled into the heart of the city and they'd never seen anything like it. I mean, these massive skyscrapers and he looked over, he pulled in right in front of one of these big skyscrapers downtown, really didn't know how to park and just kind of pulled right up on the curb and he said, come on son, come in here with me, we're going to get one of those fancy big city newspapers. And he walked into the atrium of this skyscraper and before they could find the paper, the farmer and his son were stunned by these shiny doors that just seamlessly seemed to open and then close. And above them was this arc set of numbers, 1 to 80. And he watched this 90-year-old woman on a cane walk in when the doors opened and the door shut behind her. And as they went up this tower, a few moments after they ascended on this side, a 24-year-old brunette swaggered out of the door as they opened on the other side. And the farmer looked at his son and said, go get your mama. (laughs) Instant transformation. It's a lot quicker than an elevator. The Bible says, in the twinkling of an eye. And when we get to heaven, our physical transformation will look a lot like the resurrected body of Jesus. There was a little slight change in his appearance, so much so that people that knew him had to take a double take to realize that it was him. But that it's going to be us, but we're going to be transformed. And the closest thing we know to what it's going to be like is the resurrected body of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you will look like you did when you were 21. I don't know that if God will keep you eternally in your prime, the perfect age of 39. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But he promises a glorified body, and that's something we all look forward to. In my childhood, I would look at injustice in this world, and I would see family members suffering with cancer. I would see people that I knew confined to a wheelchair, and I would see people struggling with cerebral palsy, and I would take notice of those things, and I would ask my mom or my grandfather, why didn't God do something about that now? And my mom and my grandfather didn't try to answer cliches. They acknowledged they didn't have all the answers, and they couldn't put words in God's mouth, but they would promise promise me every occasion. God may do something about it here, but ultimately if they are followers of Christ, every one of them will be healed. There is not an ailment that they have that heaven will not cure. Heaven has a way of transforming cerebral palsy and cancer and heartache and Lou Gehrig's or you fill in the blank with whatever affliction.
affliction or disability your struggle is because the Bible says there will be no sickness there. Revelation 21.4 says that he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Who does the Bible say will wipe away their tears? He will dry the tear from your eye. He will not delegate that task to someone else. He will not put it on an angelic to-do list. He will not pass it off to some patriarchal saint to dab a tissue into your eye. Jesus Christ will raise his nail-pierced hands and he will reach up to your cheek and he will wipe the tears from your eye and then the worship will begin. Don't miss heaven for the world. Heaven will be an amazing place for those who put their trust in Jesus. And it would be the height of selfishness if you didn't try to take somebody with you. Heaven is exhilarating and refreshing and fulfilling and it's going to be thrilling Everything that is good here will be perfect there. And everything that is bad here will be absent there. And God has kept every word of his promise. Every single promise. But there's one left. He's going to come back. He's a man of his word. He will come back. And every one of us will stand before God. Revelation teaches us God will keep his word. And finally, the third takeaway from the book of Revelation is that you need to be ready. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells numerous stories of trying to help people understand their eternal destination. And there is a heaven and there is a hell and there's no in between. Revelation 21, 7 paints the picture of the two destinations. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, John says. And God says, I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderer, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolater, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Throughout my life, I've had conversations about spiritual things with atheists. It happens in airports or wherever I might wind up be. They ultimately ask me what I do for a living, and that starts an interesting conversation. At the end of that conversation, I ultimately will say, In the end, if I am wrong and you are right, I have lost nothing. But if you are wrong and I am right, you have lost everything. I'm continually dumbfounded that people are willing to roll the dice about where they spend eternity. People who have chosen through their apathy or through their defiance to rebel against the plan of God for their life. My heart breaks for them and my prayer is, open their eyes, Lord. For those of you who have put your trust in Jesus, we have a a responsibility to tell others about him. We talk about a second coming, but a fourth of the world has never heard of the first coming. And they're not just on the other side of the planet. There are people that live in the apartment down the street from you. There are people that work in the cubicle next door. They don't know the story. And as we move closer and closer to Christmas, this is a golden opportunity for you to bring people into the story of God. You see, the very first time Jesus came, he came in love. But the next time he comes, he's coming in power. 
When John tells us in John 14 about this place, he records the words of Jesus where Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you and I will come again that where I am, you may be also. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. And the question is, are you prepared? Are your loved ones prepared? The top of the Capitol building in D.C., you may not realize it, it would blow your mind. There's an inscription over the dome of the Capitol that puts life into perspective. And it says this, etched in stone, one God, one law, one element, and one far off divine event toward which all of creation moves. One day you will either die or Christ will return, but either way, we are all moving closer to that far, far off divine event. We will stand before God, give an account of the life, what we have done with the life that He has entrusted to us. People innocently say to me, Pastor, you know, when I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to run up and give Jesus a big old bear hug because I love him that much. And with all due respect, can I say that'll probably be the second thing you do because the first thing you're going to do when you come into the presence of Jesus is you're going to fall flat on your face and sing with an angel sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The Bible says Every knee will bow. The uncertain skeptic, your unbelieving neighbor, the proud politician, the arrogant celebrity, and your grandfather that said he would never bow to anybody in repentance and worship, he will bow. You say, not my granddad. He's stubborn as all get out. You don't know my granddad. I don't need to go your granddad. I know his creator. And I guarantee you, he will bow. Philippians chapter 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In that instant, everything will change. With the sound of the trumpet, the overwhelming spectacle of the Son of God riding on a cloud with a sword, in that moment you can count on a fact of an overwhelming reality. Atheists will believe, agnostics will be convinced, the lukewarm will have their hearts set ablaze with love for God, the hardened heart will be softened, but you know what? In that moment, it'll be too late. They will believe, but it'll be too late. The book of James says, you believe there's one God? That's good, but even the demons believe and shudder. God demands more than our belief. He demands our obedience. He wants our surrender. He wants our acknowledgement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And for us to just read the story and not live it and not put it to practice is a waste. The book says, be doers of the word, not just hearers only. Can I remind you again? Don't miss heaven for the world. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place. And this journey through the story, some of the small group curriculum that we have been looking at, Max Lucado is one of the authors of some of the small group curriculum. Max tells a story about his childhood. Let me read you that story as we close today. I'm going to quote it straight from Max. Joe Albright had a reputation in Anders County where I was raised. He was tough, fair, and fearless rancher. 
He had huge acreage on the east side of town, and everyone knew if you wanted to go hunt rabbits, you didn't go on his property. But his son James was my best friend in high school. James and I sat on the bench together in high school football. I remember once after an out-of-town game, he invited me to spend the night with him. And because the game was out of town, we didn't reach the ranch house until well after midnight. And his father, Mr. Albright, did not know me. And when I drove up the dirt road to his ranch house, out came Joe Albright on his porch. If I remember correctly, he was in his nightwear, his pajamas. He had a huge flashlight and not recognizing me and not knowing me in my vehicle, I stepped out of the car and he put that flashlight right in my face. Who are you? And man, I shook for a second and stepped out from around the side of the car and, and said, his friend said, okay, dad, it's okay. It's Max. He's with me. And when Joe heard the voice of his son, James, he put the flashlight down and said, oh, come in, come in. Now, why could I go in? Because I was with the son of the father. And the reason that you would not need to fear judgment is not because of your good deeds, but because you have a relationship with the Son of the Father. And when your heavenly Father sees you in the company of His Son, He will lower the floodlight of judgment and He will say, Come in. Come in. Father, I pray today in the mighty name of Jesus. That every defeated, struggling saint would be comforted by the promise of the end of a story. You will even the score. Thank you, Jesus. May every boy or girl or teenager or young adult or senior saint or anybody in between today who's not ready. May they get ready before they leave this room today in Jesus name I'm going to ask the prayer team if they will to come and prepare themselves today to pray and if you're a struggling believer in need of prayer and encouragement for the devastation in your life the book of Revelation has been written to give you hope you win God wins the end of the story ends in your favor and maybe it would just be some encouragement this morning to have some other believers who are walking as pilgrims in this life pray with you in the middle of your struggle if you don't know Jesus You've walked away from a relationship with Jesus. Don't miss heaven for the world. Respond today and let these people pray with you. Tell them, tell them, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I need to surrender my heart to him. I want him to be the king. I'm tired of playing games. For those of you that are prodigals, it's time to come back home today. For those of you that aren't, Pray with me all day that the Spirit of God would get a hold of those who are. One more time, please, quickly, would you bow? Just all over this place. If you're in this room this morning and you're not ready to meet Jesus, if it was today and you're not ready to meet Jesus, but you want to be ready before you leave, would you slip your hand up high enough to let me see it? Please, just, just, I'm scanning. Thank you for your honesty. Is there anyone else? Thank you for your honesty. I believe God is pursuing your heart today. And I want to invite you when others come for prayer today. 
that you respond and let these people know, I want you to pray with me. I want to get my life right with God. I'm going to speak a blessing today over you as an ending to this service of benediction. And if you need to come for prayer about any struggle in your life, or you need to commit or recommit your life to Christ during this blessing or any time afterwards, these altars will be open for prayer. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them and turn your countenance their direction? God, will you give them peace in Jesus' name? Amen. The altars are open. God.